Listening to the Coffee Hour, I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for supporting the Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live Uncommon. Who loves a good history series? Me. Uh, I do. Me too. (laughs) Which is why we do them, because we like them, so we hope you like them too. And today we're digging into some history that I think is, is certainly relevant and pertinent for today as we lead up to the LCMS convention. We're taking a look at the history of Lutherans in North America and particularly what led up to the forming of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Our guest today, the Reverend Dr. Lawrence Rast, Jr. He's president of Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Rast, welcome to the Coffee Hour. Thank you. It's wonderful to be with you and all your listeners. I am looking forward to digging into history today with you and carrying this on for a few episodes so that we can learn more about where we came from as Lutherans. I mean, we all know we all know about the, the Reformation, the Lutheran Reformation. We have learned from Dr. McKenzie that we can't just use the word Reformation loosely. We need to be <laughs> clear about what we mean when we say Reformation. But let's talk about the the Lutheran groups in North America that really led up to the formation of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. What Lutheran groups immigrated to the United States in the 19th century? Well, you know, historians can't just start that close to the event. We have to back up. And, right, yes. And I'm, I'm doing everything I can to resist saying, now, Adam and Eve kind of got the <laughs> ball rolling here. But in all, all seriousness, just to give a little context, the the first Lutherans in North America were actually here by mistake. They were Danish. They were trying to find a Northwest Passage to the China markets, and this was in 1619. So just as colonial endeavors were getting going, the European colonization was getting going, you had some Lutherans who showed up kind of by mistake, and most of them sadly died. Terrible winter, 1619-20, and out of 66 sailors, only three survived. But uh, so Danes, and then there was a Dutch settlement, some Lutherans in the Dutch settlement of New Netherland in the 1620s, 30s. And then New Sweden was established in 1637, 38. So Lutherans were around right from the beginning of the European colonies being established here in America. But you don't really get things organized until the Germans start showing up. And that's in the very late 1600s and then in significant numbers in the 1700s. But everything gets kind of topsy-turvy with the American Revolution and and immigration slows down significantly and there's a period of of kind of minimal immigration. And then right about the year 1830, 1835, right in that time frame, immigration just explodes and you have huge numbers of Germans, many of whom are Lutheran, start to show up in North America, but you also have, in short order, a lot of Scandinavians as well. So you end up with Swedes and Finns and Danes and Estonians and everything, you know, every every flavor of Lutheran you could possibly imagine starting to show up in America here in the, the 1830s, 1840s. And of course, that's right at the time that the groups that end up founding the Missouri Synod first arrive. And it's in that kind of very dynamic context that uh, these folks begin to to seek one another out, begin to search for like-minded people and like-speaking people. We like to speak the same language. 
And that's that kind of sets the stage then for the formation of the Missouri Senate. That's a lot of immigration happening from a lot of different places. I didn't realize they came over as early as 1619. So I just, I already learned something new today. There you go. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I did know about some of the groups that were in the, the 1700s. Is that, is that, let's, let's stay on that group just for a okay. second. Cause I think that group is, is that the group that, that Muhlenberg eventually comes from? Tell us the story Very of that group. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the first attempt at forming a Lutheran church body, a Lutheran synod in America, is, is carried out by a guy named Wilhelm Christoph Birkenmeier, who was a pastor in the Hudson River Valley in the 1720 to 1750 range. And he, he, he tried very hard to make this happen, actually had one significant meeting, and that was it. So, I mean, a Lutheran with one meeting, how can this be? But that, that's all it was. It it then waited for Muhlenberg, Heinrich Melchior Muhlenberg, to really organize things. And he, he did that. He carried that off with his colleagues in August of 1748. And he and, his again, his colleagues founded what was called the Pennsylvania Ministerium, which you can kind of hear the minister-pastor emphasis there. But again, in relatively short order, given that this was the United States, well, the American colonies at that point, they, uh, the participation of laymen was absolutely integral to, uh, to the functioning of the institution. And so you had a new thing kind of happen here in America very early on, 1748, where laymen were participant in the, not only the organi organization of the church, but also in kind of overseeing its, its work and its life together. So Muhlenberg carried that off and he was, uh, he was a remarkable fellow. We have three volumes in English translation of his work as a pastor that cover his arrival here in the American colonies, Pennsylvania specifically, in 1742, almost to the end of his life in 1787. So this great window into the life of a, a pioneer pastor, or as one person put it, a colonial clergyman, as he, as he tries to organize the church, which, frankly, pretty much in utter chaos at that point in time. It, you know, these little groups of folks out in the woods and trying to organize in the congregations and that kind of thing. And, and Muhlenberg is riding his horse all over the place, dodging Indians and, and uh, dodging irate parishioners. I mean, doing the whole, the whole business that needs to be done. So since we're, we're focused on Muhlenberg and the, the group in Pennsylvania for a little bit, where did they, where did that group, and maybe you shared this, I might've missed it. I was trying to catch every detail. Where did <laughs> this group come from? The, the, where did the Muhlenberg come from? They were in, they were from Germany, but were they a particular group that, that why did they, I guess, where did they come from and why did they come? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, now that's the end of talking about the Missouri Senate for today, but uh, no, <laughs> that's, all okay. that's all right. <laughs> a little sidetrack. That's all right. We've got more episodes. <laughs> right. Exactly. So <laughs> in all seriousness, the, you had really kind of two kinds of, of groups that would come over and maybe groups is too strong a word for some of these folks but you had groups that were experiencing religious persecution who made their way to to north america significant groups of, of lutherans from the palatinate area of southwest germany by the way i'm going to take a step back here real quickly because your question's an excellent excellent one andy and it it really suggests some other things germany wasn't united at this point in time it is not the one germination that doesn't happen until 1871 
what you have are a, a whole group of discrete entities, socio-political entities, that make up what is called the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation. And they have, you know, they're, they're federated in a sense, but they're also pretty independent in a lot of ways. And so in each one of these independent entities in the Holy Roman Empire, you have an, an established church, which is either Catholic, Lutheran, or Reformed after 1648. And that means the, the church there functions independently. Well, in some areas, like the Palatinate that I mentioned before, you have a very strongly established church, and the folks who come over, in certain cases, are escaping religious oppression. So this happens in 1708 and 1709, when this big group of folks from the Palatinate comes over and settles in the Hudson River Valley and then just a little west of all, what's today Albany, New York, and Schoharie County, New York. Then you have another group that comes over in 1734 under the leadership of a man named Johann Martin Boltzius, pastor. And uh, they settle in just 20 miles outside of Savannah, Georgia. And they are Salzburg Lutherans. And the reason they end up here is they've been threatened by the Roman Catholic leadership of Salzburg, Austria, and basically told, convert to Roman Catholicism or get out. So they get out. And they end up all over the place, and, and a significant group of them comes to Georgia. Now, those are the bigger groups, easily identifiable. Then you have this stream that just continually comes of groups from a, maybe from a village or a town that decide, we're going to America. They get permission to do that, and they come over. Or even families, or even individuals. And these folks end up scattered all over the place, and they come from all these different little German territorial churches and, and, and states. By the way, at its worst, there were about 300 of those different entities that made up the Holy Roman Empire. So it's every one of these groups has its, kind of, its own identity back in the, the Holy Roman Empire. They come to America, and they say, so what are we going to do now? And what they typically do is move together, get together with folks that speak the same language, even though they might be from a different country, you know? So they come from Hanover, for example, and they think of themselves as Hanoverians, but they come here to America and there aren't that many Hanoverians in their area. So they say, well, what's second best? Somebody else who speaks German. So they even find a way to get along with Saxons and folks from Schleswig-Holstein and the Palatinate, et cetera. And, and so the German aspect of their life together really becomes the key thing. And that'll carry on. You know, that, that emphasis on being with people who speak the same language will carry on through the 1700s and into the 1800s and affect the found forming of the Missouri Synod in a really, really powerful way. Yeah, that's very interesting history to know about why all of these groups came and what was happening in all those German states at that time. A lot of turmoil for a lot of them that they were escaping to come here to the, the colonies, I suppose, and, and to, to start a new life, to build all of these new churches. We have more to talk about. We need to take a quick break. We're talking with Dr. Larry Rass, president of Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. I'm Andy Bates.
At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We are digging into history of Lutherans in North America today with Dr. Rast from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And I want to ask lots of questions, but I know it's Sarah's turn, so I'm going to <laughs> hand it back to you because I don't want to ask all the questions, but... I know you had you were probably you were prepped with another question right before we went to break. I may have been. That's okay. okay. Go ahead. Well, we were talking about about the the Muhlenberg group, and I know there's a there's going to be a lot of inter intertwined history as we go. So I don't want to go too far down his path before mm-hmm. we learn more about the the other groups that came. So the those groups came in the 1700s, mid 1700s, and then. Let's fast forward back to the the mid 1800s with those huge groups that that will become the LCMS. Where did these groups come from? Because they came from a, a few different places in those German states. Yeah, yeah. The the groups that will form the Missouri Synod, the best known is uh, are, are the Saxons that come in 1839, 1838. They leave Germany, many of them, and they arrive mostly in early 1839. And that will include folks like C.F.W. Walther, who's our first president, and folks that, that are very, very well known. A little lesser known are some of the other groups that are active at this point in time from a variety of German states. Once again, it's not a united Germany, so they're coming from different countries, as it were. And by this time, of course, by the mid-1800s, you're, you're into the period f- after the fall of the Holy Roman Empire. So there's a lot of political jockeying going on. Maybe, you know, how can we, how can we unite the German states into one, one Germany, that kind of thing. And of course... The leading group there in, in pushing for German unification are the Prussians, and they are expanding significantly during this period of time, which makes a lot of people nervous. Uh, I, my wife is of Schleswig-Holstein background, and I always tease her, you know, we, we, we Prussians, I'm a Prussian, we took you over in 1864, and, and you're welcome. We were glad to help, whether you wanted us to or not. Which, uh, again, kind of underscores the point I was making in the last segment, that you know, these, these folks, they, they speak the German language and recognize one another as Germans uh, as a result, but they think of themselves primarily in terms of the state from which they come, Saxon or Hanover or, you know, whatever the case might be. And so uh, as they, they begin to make their way here to America from these various states, the, one of the basic things they have to do is kind of overcome these cultural and at times theological differences that they've experienced back in the home com- country. And it can be a little, it can be a little challenging, very frankly. Second, and I think this is equally important, we tend to think rightly so about the, the religious implications of this kind of, you know, the, what does this mean for their Lutheranism and that kind of thing. But, but honestly, most of these folks were coming to America because of the opportunities that America offered. Freedom, which of course involved religious freedom, but also economic and political freedom. 
And of those two, probably the economic side of it was the most important. So folks are coming to America because there's huge opportunity. And those opportunities really aren't available to them in the old country. So they're, they're, they're looking for new ways to, to really excel in terms of their own futures. And that's kind of normal. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't want to shortchange them in any way, shape, or form. They're churchly people. I'll tell you a story. In, in the case of my great-grandfather, who came over in 1894, he came. He was a Prussian. Came from what's today Middle Poland. Had it had been South Prussia, and he the, the family had moved there from Pomerania a little bit earlier, sixty years previous to his birth, and they had moved there very specifically for economic opportunity. You don't have to pay taxes. You don't have to serve in the military. Was kind of the the hook that got them. Well, then everything changed, and they had to pay taxes, and they had to serve in the military. And my great grandfather was one of these poor guys who was conscripted into the army. And by that time in middle Prussia, that meant Russia. So he was in the army of the Russian empire and he did not like it at all. But being a good citizen, he served. And at the end of his service, they said, well, thanks for what you've done. And we're going to keep you as a reservist for the next 20 years. And he said, no, you're not. And he hopped on the boat and came to America. So he, he effectively went AWOL and could never return to see his family because if he had shown back up, he would have been arrested. So he, he spent the rest of his life here in America. He came. I mean, he was a Lutheran. He did all the things you're supposed to do as a Lutheran and, and, and all that. But he came here because of the oppression that he experienced, politically speaking, back in the old country. And he came here to America for economic opportunity, not so much for himself but for his kids, who all did very, very well for themselves, the oldest child being my grandfather, Alfred Otto Rast, who, because of the, the wonderful things he experienced, including meeting a, another woman from South Prussia and marrying and having a bunch of kids, he said, my, my first son will be a pastor, and that was, that was my grandpa. So, you know, that, that's, it's kind of that interacting of that sort of stuff, economics, political stuff, and, of course, religious stuff as well. And it really had all those things were at play. And the opportunities that America offered really pulled, drew people to this setting. I think you mentioned earlier that among some of the groups that, that emigrated from, from that part of Europe, from Germany, from those states, not only had political differences, but also some theological differences. Mm -hmm. What would be an example of a theological difference yeah, that they might have encountered question. among those different groups? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. The there are several things that are at play. Uh, in the 1600s, you really had a strong emphasis on orthodoxy and confessionalism within Lutheranism, and that's going to be the theme that the Missouri Synod picks up. So when we think of our pedigree, one of the things I like to do with our students is, as I ask them, go from Martin Luther, and you know, who dies in 1546, to the pinnacle of Lutheranism today, which is, of course, you, whoever you might be, and, and you have to choose a theologian in every generation to get from Luther to you. And, you know, and so they, they said, well, Luther, then Chemnitz, and then it starts to break down. And, you, know, you get about three generations in, and it gets a little tougher. Well, maybe Gerhard, then maybe you know, Kalov, somebody like that. And once you get in the 1700s, it's really, really tough. But they, in time, they you know, kind of pick Walther, Pieper, you know, 
rest. No, nobody's ever said that. But anyway, the, the, <laughs> the point being, you think of your heritage in that way. Well, orthodoxy was one particular Lutheran heritage, but there were others. There was Lutheran pietism as well, and it kind of takes a, it has a different stream, if you will, different emphasis, strong, strong emphasis on practical Christianity, the need for the sanctified life lived in accordance with the, with the revealed will of God in the Bible, and, and kind of being able to quantify, you might say, your growth in Christian practice. And lots of other stuff as well. Some good, some not as good. But but pietism is is a strong influence in that. And there's a whole trajectory in terms of folks that are involved in that that stream of Lutheranism as well. But then by the time you get in the 1700s, things go really take a different turn and a and a very challenging one. And that is with rationalism. Mm. One thing Lutheran Orthodoxy and Lutheran Pietism share is a deep commitment to the Scriptures as the written Word of God. Whereas with rationalism, you bring in this whole perspective that the Bible is just like another book and everything in it has to be tested by human reason, hence rationalism. And it takes over in a lot of ways by the latter part of the 1700s. That challenges the church in basic, basic ways. You know, denial of the virgin birth of Christ, denial of the resurrection of Christ, denial of the miracle stories, rejection of pretty much everything in the Old Testament among the more radical rationalist theologians, really, really forces the church to, to come to grips with how do we proceed? And some folks accommodate completely to it. Some folks reject it very strongly, like the founders of the Missouri Synod. And then it, it, it's just present everywhere. Everybody has to react to it. And then one other little point, and I'll try and do it quickly, is, is the, the emergence in Prussia of what is called the Union or the Prussian Union more commonly. And in October, well, actually September of 1817, the King of Prussia, Friedrich Wilhelm III, actually enforces a union between Lutherans and the Reform in his area and kind of extends the, the scope of that, that forced union as time goes on. But this causes consternation, not only for Lutherans in Prussia, like my family, but also for Lutherans in bordering states like Saxony. And they're looking at this and going, Ugh, if it can happen in Prussia, it could possibly happen here as well. What are we going to do? Well, maybe we go to America, where we don't have the interference of the state in our life together as, as the people of God. And we also have the freedom to kind of shed this huge influence of rationalism which is everywhere around us and threatens everything we do as people of God. So, yeah, there, I mean, though, there are those kind of theological and philosophical issues that are, that are pressing the folks that are going to make their way here to America. Yeah, and those aren't small issues either. I mean, that, those, <laughs> those things infiltrate so much of the theology that they would be wanting to practice I mean, obviously, the, those would be huge reasons to want to have more freedom. This may be too big of a question for only having like four minutes left, so I apologize <laughs> if that's the case. We can always pick it up in the next episode. But just maybe briefly, how do those, do those, the people that were, that the Orthodox and the, the Pietism, those groups, those diff, different groups of Lutherans that were practicing maybe slightly different theology, how do those translate then into where they settled and, and how they congregated when they arrived in the, in the colonies? 
Yeah, good, good. Yeah, that is a big question too. And you're right. I mean, these are these are macro issues, and the, and they're they're really. I mean, they're they're incredibly demanding in terms of the church's thinking mm-hmm. and how it's going to organize themselves. They, with with the movement to America, your options are fewer, at least initially. And what I mean by that is, if you come in, say, and 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 in the 1700s and and early 1800s, most folks are coming in through Philadelphia. You come in in that region and your options are very limited it's mainly people of pietist extraction so you're just kind of dropped into that perspective and like i said there's some really good things about it there's some challenges as well but when this huge wave of immigration kicks in about 1830 35 as i said earlier in that range you have a you have a different movement that begins to occur with respect to the immigrants that is they go north and then west, north up the Hudson, they come in through New York City, go north up the Hudson River, and then west across the newly opened Erie Canal. And that little ditch has a huge impact on the shape of future Lutheranism mm-hmm. because folks kind of jump over the earlier Lutheran settlements by taking this northern path. Get off the, get off the canal boats and later the, the trains at, at Buffalo, use the Great Lakes to go to places like Erie, Cleveland, Toledo, Fort Wayne, Detroit, Chicago, Milwaukee, you know, all these places we think of as kind of Lutheran cities. Uh, the folks start making their way there at, at this point in time. And what that then it allows them to do is kind of, this sounds terrible, but select who they want to be in fellowship with. You know, the, the options become many. And so between 1840 and 1875, 58 different Lutheran synods are formed. Only You're 58? <laughs> well, you already had about 30, so. <laughs> wow. So much history. I'm excited. There is so much more because we still haven't gotten up to the forming of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. We'll continue that conversation next week. It has been fun. Man, pietism, rationalism, unionism. Hitting all the big things. All the isms. Our guest today, the Reverend Dr. Lawrence Rast, Jr., President of Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Rast, thanks so much for being our guest on the Coffee Hour today. Thank you. This is my pleasure. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support The Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Anywhere.